Hear the word of God. Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. And after he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived 912 years, and then he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. And after he became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived 905 years, and then he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahalalel. And after he became the father of Mahalalel, Kenan lived 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Kenan lived 910 years, and then he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he became the father of Jared. And after he became the father of Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Mahalalel lived 895 years, and then he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. And after he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years, and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived 962 years, and then he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God then he was no more, because God took him away. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. And after he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Methuselah lived 969 years, and then he died. When Lamech had turned 182, had lived, 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived 777 years. Come on, let's say it. And he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, 
An errant word may bless it to hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. <laughs> You'll see why. You're ready. You're ready. You're ready. Figuring out why I read the whole thing. All right. So, a number of years ago, um, I had asked when I started on my long journey of learning about my Italian ancestry. I asked my aunt Judy lots of questions about our family, and she just said, "Sam, why do you want to know all this stuff?" You know, maybe you don't want to go digging around. Maybe you're not going to like what you find. That was her reply. Well, for me, I told her, I want to know the good. I want to know the bad. I want to know the ugly of my family history. Because humanly speaking, that had a huge part in making me the man I am today. See, it's those who went before me, even though I've never met them, really helped set my life. And in some ways, humanly speaking, my destiny. Now, I could share with you this morning, but I don't want to hear too much groaning. All the great details of all the incredible stories I found out over the, the, the last, I don't know, 10 years or so about my Italian roots. And I will just tell you a few things, and you'll see why. So first thing I learned, and it was really incredible to me, I'm a Jersey Shore boy. I always lived a few blocks from the beach. I worked on the beach since I was a little boy. I'm just, a, the ocean means everything to me. And I found out on my dad's dad's side, I come from a long line of mariners. My grandpa was a mariner. His dad was a mariner. His dad's dad owned a bunch of boats. And guess what they were? Mariners. And I haven't dug deeper yet. I'll let you know the rest of the story when I get there. But then on my mother, my grandma's side, who lived with me, Sicilian, her dad was a mariner. And guess what her dad's dad was? I'm not going to bore you with it, but it just keeps going up the line. So I, and, and then, of course, for me, when Jesus called his disciples, what is it, about a third of them were what? Fishermen. So I feel real good about that. Amen. So that's a cool part of the story. Now, one thing about my story, my aunt was actually right, and it was on her side of the family as well. Um, there's actually some intrigue and murder in my family line. I yeah, can you believe it? I found out that a great uncle was on a poker game in Cesaronca, small Roman town, and things got heated, and he killed somebody. And so he fled to Canada, and my great-grandpa, as his brother, went with him. And then from Canada, they came down to Patterson. And you got me from that. But anyway, so, so in my family line, I got lots of interesting things going on. And one more, because you'll see how this plays in. I got to tell you this story. The one that means the most to me, and see, my wife knew to give me this, is my grandma, Giovanna. She's the grandma who lived with me. Um, until she passed away in 1981. I was in middle school. And um, she used to tell the stories of being in Sicily. She was one of seven siblings. And uh, you want to talk poverty, she used to tell the story of some days they were so hungry because her dad died when she was around 10, left her mom with seven uh, children in a poor part of town. They were so hungry they had to eat the stale bread they used to feed the chickens. And so for them, coming to America was a big deal. And my, my great-grandma sent her to school out of all the kids just so she could learn to read and write and be able to translate things for her. And so they made the harrowing trip, and it was a harrowing trip. Uh, she was in the low level uh, for the poor people of the ship, and 
there's horrible stories about that as well, but they came here and they, they literally worked with nothing. And again, I'm where I am today because of the sacrifices that were made by my family. So when you look at my, my family, there is the good, the bad, and the ugly. Amen? Now, my, my personal story has lots of tragedy, has lots of triumph. And, but I, I do want to say this too. The, the biggest payoff, of course, about discovering my family history is discovering what? Not just dead people, right? Where I could go to see their tombstone, you know, they lived such and such a time. But guess what it reconnected me to? Living relatives who I didn't even know exist. Who t now to this day, we have such a deep, rich relationship with living people that I'm connected to. And it's been a joy to connect with my Italian family. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Pastor Santo, uh, this might be fascinating to you, I'm sure. But we came here to hear a word from God this morning, not to hear your family stories. Well, I'm very keenly aware of this, my brothers and sisters. But I opened my message up this way this morning in order for you to see how relevant, how exciting, and how applicable Genesis chapter 5, that's right, a genealogy, is to you this morning if you're in Christ. First of all, this genealogy that we just read is our family history. It's our story. We are vested in this story. You know, it's like when I walked up the stairs and I went to this ancient town of Cesarunca and I opened up these books and <coughs> literally blew the dust off and I was afraid to turn the pages because they were so ancient that I was going to rip them. Well, guess what? We're going back even further than that. We're going back thousands and thousands of years to God's comune, town hall. And we're opening up the genealogy of your history where you came from, where I came from. And we're going to see that it's not just the, the genealogy of the human race, but even more importantly, it's the genealogy of Jesus and all who are connected to him through faith. So the Bible doesn't just give us genealogy just to bore us, but it gives us for a very good reason. You know, so when we look at Genesis chapter 5 and 4 and 5, for instance, we do see what? The good, the bad, and the ugly, don't we? We see Cain murdering his brother Amen. out of jealousy. We see the beauty of how Seth replaces, as we're going to see in a moment, Abel, and becomes the new promised son. And begins a godly line when what? Men at that time, when after Seth is born, the, the promise is being kept. Men at that time did what? Started calling on the Lord. That's the first revival in history, brothers and sisters. This was the great awakening. People started calling on the name of the Lord. We got the good, we got the bad, we got the ugly. All here for us. And then we got this great deep insight that I will never forget as long as I live by C.S. Lewis talking to one of the characters in his Chronicles of Narnia. But listen, this is Aslan speaking. He says this, You have come of the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, said Aslan, and that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. Amen. Isn't that powerful? 
most importantly, it does show us how capable humans are of the most heinous cruelty and wickedness, and yet it also shows us how people who simply take God at his word and trust him shine like beacons in a fallen, dark, wicked world and point people to the hope that we have in the promised one. We're going to see in Genesis 5 how our gracious, covenant-keeping God, listen to this, pursues his sinful, fallen creation in order to bless them despite their fall into sin and shame and wickedness. We're going to see that how he begins by his grace and his grace alone. Don't miss this. He begins to redeem a people for himself. As Paul would later say, it, a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. God's not going to let his creation stay ruined. God's not going to let the promise not be fulfilled. This is what we're going to see this morning. Even in the midst of sin and judgment, the hope of God's gracious promise shines through. That's it. Even in the midst of sin and judgment, the hope of God's gracious promise shines through. We're going to see three things. First of all, we're going to see the bad news. You always got to, if you don't understand the bad news, the good news just ain't that good. You with me? So the bad news is we're going to see the solemn guarantee of death. That's the first thing in the text. You are all repeating it, right, when we're reading. Secondly, we're going to see the surprising gift of life. That's a surprise. Death is expected. God promised, right? You eat, you sin, you're going to die. But we're going to see the surprising gift of life. And then last of all, we're going to see the sure hope of salvation. Even way back here in the ancients, as Hebrews talks about, the ancients who were commended. So let's take a look at this first thing, the solemn guarantee of death. Now I need to point something out that we haven't pointed out yet, Pete and I, because I need you to understand this. As we look at this wonderful book of Moses, uh, of Moses called Genesis, let's not forget Moses wrote it. The Hebrew phrase, stick with me for a minute, it could be a little scholarly, but it's important for you. The Hebrew phrase, Ella Toledoth, can basically be translated as the generations of, or the history of, or the story of. And it occurs, listen, ten times in Genesis. In other words, it's the organizational principle, um, literary principle of the book of Hebrews. In other words, how is it structured? It's structured by these toledotes. And so you have, this is the toledoth of what? The creation of the heavens and the earth. This is the toledoth of Adam, and then you get the genealogy of Adam, right? And then you're going to have the toledoth of Noah, the sons of Noah, Shem, Terah, Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, Jacob. You follow me? And that's what this book is all about. So our passage begins with the second of these markers. This is the generation of, or the story of, or the history of, Adam. That's where we're at. And the first feature of Adam's line in chapter 5 that jumps out and literally smacks us in the face is how serious man's fall into sin really was. Eight times we read this sad, depressing refrain, and all of you were reading it with me out loud because you saw how it was refraining, and this is it. And then he died. 
It's interesting, in the next genealogy, when it mentions the different people born, it doesn't mention about dying. It just takes it for granted. But here, the writer needs to point something out because he keeps saying, as you picked up, and he died, and then he died, and then he died. Well, this is what's very important to see. Remember back in the garden, real quick review, very quick. God gave our first parents one command. You remember it. It was the command not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he gave them this solid warning. The day you eat of it, what? You will die. Now, you might remember if you've been with us through our study of Genesis, um, that the serpent sowed the seeds of doubt in Eve's heart and mind. And also sowed the seed in doubt about how serious God was about this whole you eat it, you'll die thing. Remember this? And then, of course, the serpent flatly contradicted it and said, you won't die. You surely won't die. And then we all know the story too well. It's almost like we won't want to keep hearing it, but Adam and Eve doubted God's word. They fell for the devil's lie. No, scratch that. What did they do? They chose the lie. They chose it. They'd rather lie, live in a fantasy world than have God be God. They wanted to be God, right? Wasn't that the temptation? God knows you'll be like him. You see, that's the lie that, that we're still being told today, that God doesn't mean what he says. But brothers and sisters, this passage that writes, it's right before us this morning tells us what? God says what he means, and he means what he says. They found out the hard way, because the day they ate of it, they didn't first experience physical death, but as we saw in the weeks previous to this, we saw they, they, they definitely experienced the core of what death is, separation from God. That's ultimate death. Separation one from another. They were naked, and they were, they, they were, there was no shame, remember, before this? But then what? They were naked, and they were afraid. And then even the ground does not cooperate anymore. There was a death of a relationship with them and their environment. And then, of course, eventually we see, we got around to in our text, physical death comes. And it's sad. And it's ugly. And in some ways, think about it this way, it really is unnatural to have the spirit plucked from the body. It seems natural to us now because it's been thousands and thousands of years it's been happening, but it wasn't meant to be. You know, when you look at a loved one's cold body, you're like, this something's just not right about this, man. Something ain't right. I look at a, an animal that I've loved for many years when it's passed, and I say, this, this, this something wrong here. The song put it this way earlier, and that's why I, put, I chose to sing it again this morning. We only sung it a few weeks back. God wasn't kidding when he kicked him out of Eden. Amen. Notice in our text how many times, verse 5, verse 8, 11, 14, 17, 20, 27, and 31, and then he died. Ecclesiastes 7.2 puts it this way. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. That's what the author of Genesis, that's what Moses wants us to see here. Take it to heart. The wages of sin is what? It's death. 
you're ever tempted by the evil one to minimize sin or to play it down, do me a favor. Take a short ride to a graveside, a graveyard, and look around. You'll see sin isn't that glamorous. It's not as enticing. Now why does Moses go to great pains to point out that each of the men in the list died? Now I want you to see something not simply to show us that sad fact that the wages of sin is death. But that is part of it. That's the first point I wanted to make. But there's a second point. And I think this is the real reason or, or the main reason he points this out. And it's found in verses 22 and 24. I saw your reaction when we read it. Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God and then he was no more because God took him away. So here's the cool thing. Our family history doesn't only contain the solemn guarantee of death. It also contains the surprising gift of life. And that's what we're going to look at now. So here's the point. Then he died, then he died, then he died. Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more. Because God took him. Now I don't know about you, but I'm like, wait a minute. Back the truck up. Did I read what I think I just read? Everybody dies. What's up with this Enoch? All of a sudden in the text it says he just was no more. And notice, because God took him. John Salhammer Sal, puts it this way. Enoch is an example of one who found life amid the curse of death. In Enoch, the author is able to show that the pronouncement of death is not the last word that need be said about a man's life. One can find life if one walks with God. Amen. That's awesome, isn't it? Amen. That's to say, exactly, Enoch never died. He's still alive to this day. You know, people say Methuselah is the oldest. Guess what? Ain't true. Enoch's got him. Just saying. Still. Yeah. No. The hope of life shines like a light in the midst of the judgment of death in the person of Enoch here. And what was the distinguishing mark of Enoch? I don't know about you, but I want to say, hey, now wait a minute. What was so special about Enoch that God decided, I can't stand it no more. I'm not even going to let you die. I'm just going to take you to be with me right away. By the way, there was only one other person that we know of that this happened to. You remember who that was? Elijah. God said, I can't wait for you either. I'm sending a chariot. Well, text makes it clear what set him apart. Notice what it was. It's, it's a very simple phrase. He walked with God. That's it. Now, there was another recipient of God's grace in the midst of wickedness and, and destruction and, and the warning of judgment. And you remember who that was? The man who stood out in his generation? We read about him at the end of this list. Noah. And notice, if you look at Genesis 6, 9, this is how Noah was described. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and wait for it, and he walked with God. Now, this is cool. I never thought about it this way. See, I'm such a genealogist. Noah walked with God just like his great-grandpa Enoch did. Wow. Did you realize that? Enoch was his great-grandpa, his biznono. 
I think that's really cool. Now, there's a number of things we can learn from this, and we can apply it to our lives right now this, at this very moment. And the first is, notice what set Enoch apart so that he didn't experience death but was taken right into God's presence. And I, I, this, was, this really hit me. It doesn't say this. Enoch did an incredible deed, so incredible that God snatched him away from this life. That is, listen, Moses didn't say he slayed a giant and was no more. Now, one of his descendants later will do that. We know who that was. It doesn't say he defeated an unbelieving nation, as some of his descendants would do, or his children's children. He didn't shut the mouth of lions, but let's just slow down and notice what he did. He simply did this. He walked with God. Why do I think that's powerful? I'll tell you why I think it's powerful. What gets God's attention is not flashy stuff. It's not heroic deeds. What, what, what's great in God's eyes, what makes um, Enoch stand out in a crooked and a wicked generation is simply walking with God by faith. And that's what makes us stand out in a sinful, depraved world today. The author of Hebrews sets Enoch up as an example for us to follow. follow. And he says this, what? By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, taken he was commended as one who pleased God. And what pleases God, brothers and sisters? Faith. Believe in what he says. That means, listen, that means when he warns you of the wrath to come, you believe it and you flee it. See, later on, I don't want to preach the Noah sermon yet, but later on, what was Noah known for? He was warned that judgment was coming, and God told him to do one of the most foolish, ridiculous things in the middle of a desert, and he could ask, go build a huge boat. Really? Well, guess what? Noah believed God. And walked with God by what? By faith. So what, what pleases God in our day? Walking with him by faith. That means in the big moments of life and especially in those little moments, moments of life. When it's popular to walk with God, then everybody's praising the Lord, amen? But when it's out of style and when the culture all around us is persecuting us because we uphold the word and we believe it, as crazy as it sounds in a world that's, a, that's really gone mad, that calls evil good and good evil, when we have clear direction from God's holy word, and when we don't understand why, we still trust. That's valuable to God. God says, I love that. Add a boy, add a girl. And think about it, it really boils down to this wonderful verse that we sang, that we have on our shirts, and that all new cities really uh, take to heart. From Micah. You probably know it by heart. He has shown thee, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you? What? But to do justly, to love mercy, and don't forget the very last part, and to walk humbly with your God. Amen. And here's the thing that's super important to see. The only way we can do that as fallen sinners, saved by grace, is by faith. 
Because listen, this is important to understand this. Don't miss this. I don't want you to, to, to come out of this whole thing. Be good. Don't be bad. Amen. Be like Enoch. Don't be like uh, Cain. No, that's not the point. The point is this. We can't make up for what we've done. No amount of crying, no amount of works will ever make up for the sin that we committed. It will never erase the guilt that we inherited from Adam. And it won't change our fallen nature. But we can take God at his word. We can trust in his promise that he will send a son born of a woman who will do what we cannot do for ourselves. And who will be a better sacrifice, whose blood will speak better word than the word of Abel. The one who will crush the serpent's head. And it will secure for us, listen to this, an eternal inheritance that will never fade away or perish. Can I get an amen? amen. Excuse me one moment. I told you I'd get excited about this stuff. All right. That was the warm-up. Because here's the last point, and I saved the best for last. What did they have all of the ancients? Because that's what Hebrews calls them, the ancients. Think about it. These are the first people that ever lived. What did they have faith in in particular? And we need to see this because throughout the book of Genesis, as a matter of fact, throughout the whole entire word of God, the Bible, you will see what they had faith in, it's important to see this, is the word of God. Revelation. God reveals himself. And we trust in that revealed word. And I want to show you the, the very promise that they, the, the ancients trusted in. And that's the last point I want to show is the sure hope of salvation. I want you to see I ain't making this stuff up. What promise did Adam, Eve, Seth, Enoch, and the early descendants of Seth who began to call upon the Lord in public, what promise did they trust in? What did they have? It was so early on. Turn with me to Genesis 3.15. I want you to see that this promise was to them. And even though they didn't understand all of what it meant, like we, we understand it obviously today, they understood enough that they could take it to heart and believe it and trust in God's promise. 3.15, when God is cursing the serpent, he says this, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, in other words, your children, and hers, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So in other words, what God was promising way back then, even when, when we thought all was lost, all was ruined, God was saying, I don't think so. Because let me tell you what's going to happen. There's going to be a son born of woman, the seed of the woman, and he's going to crush the head, your head, and there will be always enmity. That means friction between your, her children and whose children? The serpent's children. Listen, did you know the serpent's going to have children? A little shocked, aren't you? Well, do you know in 1 John what 1 John says about Cain? 1 John says Cain belonged to who? The evil one. Did you know that? Cain was a son of the devil. And he showed it by his actions and his non-repentant heart, didn't he? And so it's important to see right here in Genesis 4 and 5, we see the working out of the promise given 
in Genesis 3.15. Because what I want you to see is, turn with me, you could just look, if, you, if not, just, just hear it and look later. In chapter 4, verse 25, we read this. Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. So here's the point. Eve was looking for that promise to be fulfilled about having a son, right? Whom the Lord would, would, use, uh, would deliver his people through. So when Abel was killed, how do you think Eve felt? Like what happened to the promise? So when Seth was born, she was excited out of her mind. Why? Because the Lord has given me another son to replace who? To replace Abel. So she recognized in Seth what? The promise lives. Amen. The promise lives. God keeps his word. Amen. One more quote from John Salahammer. I love it. He puts it so well. He says, chapter 5 shows us just how seriously the author takes the promise in 315. The focus is on the seed, in other words, the child, and the one who will crush the head of the snake. A pattern is established in chapter 4 that will remain the thematic center of the book. The one through whom the promised seed will come is not the heir apparent, that is the oldest son, but the one whom God chooses. Abel, the younger of the two, receives God's favor. Seth, still the younger son, replaced Abel. And what does that show? That shows it's by grace. That shows it's by grace, not by works. Because technically we'll see throughout the whole Pentateuch, it's usually the older that gets the blessing. It's the older that inherits, right? But instead, remember what God does with Jacob, but he does it even way back here to show, uh-uh. It's not by birthright. It's not by works. It's not by human effort. It's by my sovereign, gracious choice. Throughout the book of Genesis and the rest of Scripture as it unfolds, we will see this development of the offspring of Satan going after the offspring of the woman to try to make that promise not happen. Constantly. We're going to see that. And we're going to see God continue to rescue. God continue to save. Because that line has to be preserved. And I want you to see something, and um, I pointed it out to my wife last week, and she had a big aha. But if you go to Matthew, uh, I think it's Matthew, or is it Luke? Luke 3.38, I think. Um, in the genealogy of Jesus, if you know, it starts with Jesus, and it goes all the way back to Adam. But I want you to read, I'm going to read just the last line for you. The son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. In other words, Jesus comes from the line of who? Seth. Even back then, in the prospect of death all around you, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. We prayed for it earlier. And Prince of Peace. I don't think we realize when Jesus was born on that first Christmas morning 
when the godly Jewish people who had faith, when they heard the term, a son is born, a child is given, they were of the line of thousands of years of God saying that he was going to do this. Of thousands of years promising he's going to bring a son who's going to right all wrongs. Who's going to deliver us from our sins. Who's going to redeem us out of the slavery of sin. And who's going to take that devil and smash his head once and for all. Amen. And send him to a place that he will never escape from. Now, I want to close with something very applicable to us today. And I, I came up with this insight. I was reading a commentary just a few minutes ago before the service started in my office. And uh, it's by Derek Kidner. And he makes a really good point. In chapter 4, we have Cain's line, if you notice that, Cain's genealogy. And it only goes seven generations, and it just peters out. And then you have Seth's, which goes the full ten, which is the number of fullness, really. But in Cain's line, if you notice, his children had great worldly success. You remember it talked about Cain's children? Oh, this one, you know, he was good with musical instruments, and, and this one made bronze, and this one was great. But Derek Kidner puts it this way. But in the history of salvation, the family of Cain, is an irrelevance. I remember uh, Craig, my pastor, since I was uh, a newborn believer, um, just the other day he gave me all of his commentaries. Uh, and I was so honored to have them. And um, he, we were looking at one great commentary from a, a, a gentleman who's now with the Lord. And Craig said, you know, it's a shame he didn't, the conservative scholars didn't get more recognition. And I said, but Craig, from who? Recognition from who? The world? And he said, you're right. Or from God. Now listen, I'm closing with this. Enoch walked with God and then he was no more because God took him away. And I want to ask you this morning, where do you want recognition from? You want it from a sinful world? To give you accolades and say you're all that? Are you looking for recognition from the one and only true God? Because if you want recognition from him, you just got to put trust in his son and believe in his word and live like you believe it. And then you'll be of the line of Jesus. You'll matter for eternity. Because listen, people of the world today, they might matter for the moment, but then what? They're an irrelevance for eternity. We trust in Jesus. We might not matter too much for the moment, but we're going to matter for eternity. Let's pray. Father, this word is a powerful word. It is a life-giving word. It is a word that stokes our hope so that putting sin to death, living unto righteousness, um, repaying when people pay us evil, evil we repay it with good. We walk with you humbly. We know, Lord, that you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you and who listen to you even when the world around them, around us, tries to say evil's good and good is evil. 
Lord, we trust Jesus, the only one who could forgive us, who could take away our sins. And we ask this day, Lord, that more and more we could walk, simply walk humbly with him. And as we do that, do justly and love mercy before our fellow men. It's in Jesus' name and for his glory we pray with hope in his grace alone. Amen.